Well, good morning. Great. Again, three times in a row I have tried. I have greeted you kindly. I have said good morning, and I literally heard one person out there go, good morning. So let's try this again. Good morning, church. Woohoo! There you go. All right, well, it is good morning. I'm glad to see you. Hey, if you brought your Bibles, you can turn it to John chapter 1. That's where we'll be launching off of today. That is uh, the passage of Scripture we'll be uh, tackling. Um, but if you are here, we are, uh, we are, which you are here, so welcome. Um, we are starting a new series. Uh, we're starting a new series that we're calling Felt Needs. We're going to talk about our needs that we have as humans, that we all share. These are universal. Uh, Maslow, if you've ever heard of him, Abraham Maslow, he is the famous uh, uh, American psychologist. He was the one who gave us Maslow's hierarchy of need. Um, he kind of helps us out because we've got some basic needs that we need to hit all the way up to what he called self-actualization. And so we're, uh, we're going to talk about the different needs that sit in that scope, some that are talked about, some that are not talked about. Our basic needs that we have, he lets us know on the very bottom rung of that, uh, of that pyramid is that we need to have water to eat, or water to eat, yes, exactly, and then food, food to drink, all right? Slushies is what we're talking about here. And then we need to have shelter in which we need to survive. We need to have oxygen in our lungs in order to breathe. These are basic needs, right? Coffee, just for some of you, like I need my coffee in the morning, that's not a basic need. A basic need is water. Water is a basic need. And Pepsi, those two things right there. Those are two basic needs. So we're going to talk about our needs, but specifically what I want to do is I want to talk about felt needs. Okay, these are universally shared. They're just as, I think they are, just as important as water, just as important as breathing. We desire, we long for these needs. Often, unfortunately, they go unmet. They're not talked about a whole lot, um, but they drive our decisions. Uh, they affect our emotions, so how we feel about certain things, and they're just embedded into our DNA. It's what it means to be a human is to have these needs. And so the first one we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a variety for this next series, but the first one I want to talk about is our universal need to be known. To be known. And what I mean by that is to be understood, for someone to get us, someone to understand who we are. This is a felt need. And I'm talking here, hear me on this, it's more than facts. It's more than familiarity or someone being famous that they know about you. It's more than information. This is what does it mean to truly be known by someone, that they get you. And so in my research this week, I, uh, I, I was reading about famous people, and I read about um, Albert Einstein, who to most of us is considered to be the smartest person. He is commonly considered the smartest person that has ever lived. And so I learned a lot of information about him. Here's what we know about Albert Einstein. One, he was born in Germany in 1879. When he was born, apparently he had an oversized, you know, abnormally big head. So I don't know what that means. If you have a big head, that means you're going to be smarter. But um, he didn't speak until the age of three. So he actually didn't utter a word until the age of three. When he was five, um, his dad showed him a compass, just handed him a compass, and he was so intrigued that it was at that moment that he decided that he wanted to pursue physics. I don't know how you figure that out at the age of five, but apparently he knew it. Um, what's nuts about the smartest man that ever lived is that he dropped out of high school. So I don't know if it was too easy for him, but apparently not because he failed his first college entrance exam. So he dropped the smartest man in the world. 
Now, obviously we all know this. This is the fact that he has stated that he hated haircuts, right? And so we've, we've seen that. But what I didn't know, which I thought was absolutely awesome, was that he hates socks as well. So I don't know if as a kid he had an issue with some sort of sock puppet one day that scared him, but he doesn't like haircuts or socks. Um, he often wore, catch this, the same clothes. Not always, people have said that he has the same shirt over and over again in the same pants. It wasn't that, but he wore the same similar clothes for this so that he wouldn't waste time thinking about what to wear in the morning. So every day he could focus on his work. So I heard amens on that one. <laughs> That's awesome. Must take you a lot of time. Um, he loved the violin. He loved sailing. He loved music. And he said he often thought through the process of music. He thought imagination was more important than, um, than knowledge. He was married twice. He had two kids. He had a son and he had a daughter. But unfortunately, his family suffered because of, of his focus on his work, that he didn't have time to focus on his family. Uh, so he did a good job at his work. He won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921. In World War II, this is nuts, Adolf Hitler saw him as public enemy number one, that this is the guy that we're going after because of his intelligence. He died in 1955, and in the year 2000, Albert Einstein was named the person of the century. The person of the century. Now, I feel like him and I, if we were to met, we would have been good friends, right? We would have been good bros, two peas in a pod. His intelligence matched with my intelligence. I felt like our coffee conversations would have been just his intelligence uh, because I have nothing to offer in that. But I learned a lot about him this week. I read about him, uh, but here's how he felt. This is how Albert Einstein felt. We know a lot of facts about him. We know a lot of things about him. But this is how he felt in the midst of all of that. This is a crazy quote. He says, It is strange to be known so universally and yet to be so lonely. That is Albert Einstein, one of the most famous people who have ever lived, struggles to be known universally and yet feel isolated to feel unknown. We have a desire to feel Known. And I'm talking more than facts. What does it mean to be fully, fully known? For my wife and I, when we were dating and right before we got married, we had a phrase that we would say to each other. So um, we would say this. We were getting to know each other and we felt like we got to know each other really, really well. And so um, we would say this phrase, I know you. So she would tell me that. In context, this is how it worked, is she would give me a gift. She's really good at giving gifts. Very thought, very thoughtful, very considerate. She would hand me a gift, and it would be something that I really wanted. And so I'd say, how did you know? And she would respond by saying, because I know you, right? In my proposal video to her, I made a whole section on, um, because I know you. I know this about you. I know that about you. Um, and after being married for 12 years, I realized I know Jack nothing, really. Um, that I thought I knew her, right? I thought I knew her. And then she's changed and she's become more beautiful the more I've gotten to know her. And she's gotten to know me and I've become more of me, you know? And she's gotten to know me and that's, you know, we're still together, which is an amazing thing. But Here's the deal. Uh, my wife, she, can, she, she does know me now. She knows me better now than she knew me when we got married. 
She can predict things about me. So when we walk into a room, she knows really where I will want to sit in a restaurant. She knows where I want to sit at what place in the table. She can predict how I'm going to respond to certain things. She knows when I'm going to speak up. And I don't know how she knows this, but she knows even what I'm going to say. And I'm, I, this is true because she will kick me under the table before I've even said something, right? I haven't even made a statement. I'm already being kicked because she knows what I'm going to say. And so she knows me. I know her. Ladies, somehow, I don't get this, you know each other. There is this sixth sense, this magical ability when you are with a good friend and you will look at another lady and she will look at you and you had a whole conversation, right? You just like, you had, you know, and you know, and like, ah, that was great, wasn't it? You know? Guys, this is super frustrating because if a guy were to come up to me and he were to express his feelings, right? Not that any guy would ever do that, but let's just say hypothetically, a guy would come up and he would express his feelings. He would tell me exactly how he feels. I still would have no clue what he's saying. Still no clue. Just because I, I don't, we don't do that as guys. But here's the truth, the bottom line truth. As much as you get to know somebody else, right? As much as you get to know a human, you can never fully know a human completely. It cannot be done. No human can understand another human. We cannot know another person fully. That is the truth. Some of us have great relationships in our family, in our church, and we're connected like we've never been before on social media and things like that. But yet, like Einstein said, in the midst of it, we can feel lonely, right? There are moments of loneliness where we're like, gosh, nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. I just feel isolated, right? And so my wife and I, we don't say that statement anymore because we have learned that I barely knew her when I got married, but the more and more I get to know her, I realize how much I do not know about her. And the more and more I am surprised, like I said. So no human can fully know another human. And here's why. is because they are not you, right? You can never fully be known to another human because they are not you and they are not God. Because God is, is the only one who can truly know us. God knows us completely, completely. Every ounce of who we are, every molecule, every piece of DNA, strand of DNA, he knows it completely. Psalm 139 talks about how God literally knit us together in our mother's womb and he knew us in that moment. Luke 12 talks about the number of hairs that he actually knows, the number of hairs that are on our head. And if that's me, God knows that, he knows that they're, they're going quickly. And so he's keeping a running total that's getting lower and lower and lower. And I'm getting more frustrated and frustrated and frustrated, right? So he understands the number of hairs on our head. In, uh, in John 4, there's a cool passage um, about Jesus as he was meeting with this woman at the well, right? She was a Samaritan woman. This is a very popular story that's told oftentimes. But what's crazy about this is they're having this conversation about uh, water and living water, and then Jesus just kind of starts having conversations about her husbands or her husbands that she doesn't have and the man that she's with now, and Jesus basically supernaturally reads her mail and understands what she's going through and catch how impressed she was. She walked back to her village and she says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. God knows us completely. Nobody else will. Nobody else can. 
God knows us completely. And the passage I want to sit in today is John 1. And, and it's about this. It's about the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. And I have never in all my years of being a Christian and being in church have ever heard a pastor teach on this passage. But there is an exchange, there is a conversation that you have to hear and you have to see in this, especially between Jesus and Nathaniel. And so here's what it is. Verse one, uh, uh, or sorry, John chapter one, verse 43. Here's what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. I love that. He pursued Philip, and he said to him, follow me. This is kind of like a quick little bullet point that G- where um, Philip becomes a disciple. Verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And no joke, in four weeks, we're going to talk all about the town of Bethsaida because it's a very unique town. But check out the first thing that Philip does the moment after he meets Jesus. Philip found Nathanael. And I love that because if you were around when we did our discipleship series, do you remember what Andrew did? First thing Andrew did when he ran into Jesus, what was the first thought he had? I gotta go tell my brother Peter. And that's what he did. He went and he found Peter and he brought him to Jesus. It's the same thing here. Philip runs into Jesus and he goes and he grabs Nathanael and he brings him to Jesus. Now the name Nathanael literally means gift of God or gift from God. And we're not sure, um, but we believe, most people, most scholars would believe that he's one of the 12 disciples. And here's why we're not sure is because we have lists of disciples. We truly have lists where they have their names. But back in that day and where they lived, they had two names. They had a Greek name and they had an Aramaic name. And the Greek name, his Greek name is Nathaniel. They believe his Aramaic name, which is one of the disciples, is Bartholomew. But we're not sure, but what we do know is we do know that Nathaniel hung around the disciples. And so that he was a part of that. Whether he was part of the 12 or there were others on the outskirts, we do know that he was in that arena with Jesus. Verse 45, here's what we know. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one, the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, what Philip is saying is, Nathaniel, dude, we found the Messiah. We've been looking for him for a long time, the promised one of God to restore all things. We've got him. We found him. And guess what? He's from Nazareth. And this is where Nazareth gets its bad rap. I've heard preachers over and over again compare it to terrible places like Renton and things of that nature. And this is where it comes from. This verse right here. He says, Nazareth, what, can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from there? And so what we noticed, and the most important thing is not how bad Nazareth is, but how skeptical Nathaniel is about this coming Messiah. He's thinking, okay, whatever. Philip, I don't know. You've done this 14 times. Here we go again. And he appeases him. And check out what um, um, Philip's response to this. I love this. He, um, it's worth noticing because he doesn't argue with Nathaniel. He just gently invites him. He just says, hey, Come and see, man. Come and see. And so that's a great response. That's a wise response because what Philip knows is if he can just get Nathaniel in front of Jesus, then Jesus will answer the questions. Jesus will take away his skepticism. Jesus will provide what he needs. And so I just got to get him in front of Jesus. And so verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel, so this is where it gets interesting. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, so he's off at a distance, and Jesus says to him, so picture that. Nathanael's coming in, and he says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And guile, just so that you know, is it's found 11 times in the New, Cha- New Testament. It means deceit or falsehood. So what Jesus is saying as Nathaniel approaches is, hey, check this guy out. He's an Israelite, a true Israelite. There is no falsehood in him. There is no deception. This is a good man. And so truly, Jesus gives him a compliment as he's coming to see him. But look at this, the skeptic in Nathaniel, he gets defensive and he asks the question, how do you know me? Like, how do you know me? We have not met before. How do you know me? Nathaniel asks. So it's kind of this, you know, this arrogant kind of skeptical vibe that he's putting off. But look at what Jesus does. This is where the miracle happens. Jesus answered. And so what did he answer? He answered the question, how do you know me? Right? And and Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, I think that's so interesting. Here's what we don't know. We don't know what Philip was doing underneath the fig tree. We have no clue. He could have been reading a book. He could have been eating a fig. We have no clue. He could have been playing with a fidget spinner. We have zero idea what he was doing. But what we do know is when Jesus said, hey, you know, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, it got his attention. And check out what it did. Verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi. So now he says he's a teacher. You are the son of God. That declares him to be a deity, to be a God. You are the king of Israel. So truly, check this out. Nathanael is pulling a quick 180. He is a skeptic. He wants nothing to do with the Messiah, nothing to do with that. And he just appeases Philip and decides to go meet Jesus. And on the way, Jesus compliments him and says, hey, here's a good guy coming down. He's like, you don't know me. You have no clue who I am. But Jesus is like, well, hold up. I do know you. I know you better than anybody else, and I'm going to prove it. Remember when you were under that fig tree? And I don't know what he was doing under that fig tree. You know, who has a clue what he was doing there? I'm assuming, all right, assuming from the text that Nathaniel was by himself and that Jesus was saying something that nobody else could have known and he was using his, if you will, his supernatural knowledge that he has. And so it doesn't matter what he was doing on a fig tree. The point of the whole passage is Jesus actually knew Nathaniel. And he proved it right there. He says, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus is literally saying, I know you better than anybody else. God knows us completely. He knew Nathaniel completely. He knows us completely. Wholeheartedly. You ever wonder if anybody gets you? Somebody's got you. He's the same guy who made you. That's God. That's Jesus. He knows you. Now for some of us, myself in this, that is so comforting. I think that's amazing that somebody knows me thoroughly. God knows my dreams. He knows your hopes. He knows your desires. He knows what you long for. He gets you. Nobody else will get you like God has got you. But for some of you, the thought of that is scary, right? That God knows you completely. He knows your thoughts. He knows your history. He knows everything. And here's the cool part of that. This is where it turns from bad news, scary news, to good news. He knows us completely, and he still likes us, right? 
He still likes us. And some of you are like, wait, he does more than that, right, Jake? He loves us. I know, but if I said he loves us, you wouldn't hear that. He likes us. He really, 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 really likes us. And that's amazing. Think about that. Stop and think about that for just 30 seconds. This God who made us knows everything that we've ever done, good and bad, right? In this moment, he knows everything about us in the present, where you sit, what you're feeling, how you're doing, what's going on inside of your head. If you're listening to me, you're not listening to me. He knows all of this that's going on. If you're sleeping, so wake up if that's you. But he also knows everything that we're about to do, good, bad, and the ugly. And guess what? Knowing all of that, he still likes us. That is amazing. That is the greatness of God right there. That is absolutely astounding. I get astounded because my wife has gotten to know me more and more and more, and she still likes me. But God knows me better than my wife knows me, and he still loves me. Same with you. So whatever you've done, whatever has gone in your past, whatever's in your head, whatever you've wrestled with, whatever's tripped you up, God knows all about it, and he still likes you a whole lot. That's amazing. Now, at this point in the talk, some of you would go, well, that's great, Jake. I kind of knew all of that, right? The answer to the question that we need to be known is that I'm known fully by God. If you've been in church in any amount of time, you would be like, yes, I know that. He knows he has cattle on a thousand hills. He knows about all of those. He knows about me. He knows me, and I get that. But here's the disconnect, and this is where it moves into the felt need category, is because I think most of us understand that intellectually, right? That we know that God knows us, our ever most being, but yet it somehow doesn't seem to move down to here. We know it, but do we truly feel it? Do we truly believe that he knows us? And even in that, does he still like us? So it is a felt need. We want to experience, right? Not just know, we want to experience the fact that God knows us completely. And yet, for a lot of us in the room, we would say that we feel this distance when it comes to God, right? That's the disconnect. That's the disconnect between here and here. We know it, we don't feel it, we feel distant. And if that's you and you're in this room and you feel distance from God, you just need to know this, you're not the only one to ever feel that way. You're not the only follower of Christ to feel that way. Look at David in the Psalms. He literally was considered to be a man after God's own heart. Hear his own words. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He feels distant. David also says, why, Lord? Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And again, David says this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And what's amazing about this is even Jesus, okay, part of the Trinity of God, literally quoted David on the cross. You ever wonder where that phrase came from? David said it first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of Jesus. So even at a period in Jesus' life did he feel distance from the Father. He, didn't, he knew he wasn't distant from the Father, but he felt that distance. And so if you feel that and you are here, you just need to know that you are not the only one to have ever felt that way. Like, God, where are you? My world is crashing down. Where in the heck are you? You seem so far away. And so here's the question. 
if there is distance now, and there was a time when you were not feeling that distance, or God was close, and you felt him, and you knew that, and that was part of that, and that's part of your story, and now you feel distance, here's the question. Who moved? Who moved in that equation? Because there's only two players in the story. It's you, and then there's God. So it's either God moved or we moved. And here's the promise God made to us. He says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus himself said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Do you know who wrote Psalm 139? David. David did. The same guy who said, I feel this distance. God, where are you? You feel far. Is the same guy who said, I can't escape your presence. You are with me. How is that even possible? And so the question is, who moved? It remains. The question remains, who moved? And the answer to that is God never moved. God never moved. We did. If we feel distance, if we don't feel like we are known by God, feel it, not just know it, feel it, then it's us who have done the moving. It's us. And here's the beautiful truth about that. No matter how far you walk away from God, right, you could go miles. Some of us, we have gone years, even decades, where we have walked away from God. And it doesn't matter how many steps you've made on that journey. You could walk a thousand steps, a million steps. Know this, God is one step back. He's right here. All you have to do, you could walk a thousand miles this way. All you have to do is turn around and he's right there. Because he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's one step back. Now the equivalent, the biblical equivalent to that thought, that processing is this, James 4, 8. It's an amazing verse and it's where we're gonna sit for a little while too. It's draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a promise. I love that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We need to draw near to him. If we're not feeling his presence, we need to draw near to him. Let me see if I can explain it through my own life. Um, a lot of you know, I have a son named Percy, um, and his middle name is Percy Wilder. I don't know if that was prophetic or what that was, because he is all boy. My son is crazy. If you've ever worked in the children's ministry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He's the one who hits the other kids, right? <laughs> so that's my son. And I'm proud of him, not for hitting other kids, but I'm proud of him. And he is nuts totally nuts. All boy. We are lightsabers. We are, um, we are punching. We are wrestling, sometimes biting. We tell them that that's not good, right? But he is all boy 100%. And I have raised girls up to this point. And so kind of where I've gotten is the, the, I really enjoy, and some of you dads will be with me on this, I just love cuddling my kids, holding my kids. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Percy wants nothing to do with that whatsoever. This is no joke. I will tuck him in. We tuck him in every night. I put him in his bed, and this is what my son says to me almost every night. No, daddy, you go your bed, right? That's what he tells me. <laughs> I am ordered by my son not to cuddle with him. i like, can I have a hug? No. Boom, right in the nose. <laughs> that is my son. 
I love him so much. Like, you have no idea. I mean, just if you're a parent, you do. I love him. I want to grab him. I want to hold him. I want to embrace him. But he wants none of that. But every once in a while, I don't know if it's when he's sick, right, or he's just way too tired or whatnot, he, or, you know, gets hurt. Actually, yesterday, he hurt his finger when he was pulling back his bow and arrow, probably shooting it at his sister, right? And he hurt his finger, and he pinched it, and he ran to me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I grabbed him, and he's screaming, and he's right into my chest. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. <laughs> oh, I was just holding him in that feeling. And I'm like, I'm sorry you're in pain, but ah, oh, you know? And every once in a while, he turns to me. And in those moments when he turns to me and he reaches for me and he longs for me, I am there, right? I think it's the same thing with God. Percy spends 90% of his time doing whatever Percy does. And really, my wife gets the other 9%. When that 1% comes up and he turns back to me, and he wants my attention, and he wants to hug me. Oh my gosh, I seize those moments. And I think God does the same thing. You could walk 100 miles that direction, and God is one step back. He's just right on your tail, waiting for you to say, God, Father, here I am. And he wants to embrace you. That's how much God loves us. And if we feel distance, that's how we shrink that distance. If we want to reconnect with him, we simply draw next to him and we will feel known in that moment. He understands our pain. He wants us there. And so that's how we shrink that gap. Look at what David also said in Psalm 145. He says, the Lord remains near to all who call out to him, to everyone who, who calls out to him, and I love that, sincerely. Whoever is ever sincere about it. If you're feeling distance from God, the simple answer is to draw near to him. Draw near to him. And so how do you do that? As often as I can, as much as I want to, I want to try to get very practical in ways in which we can draw near to God. Some of these you will have heard your whole entire life if you grew up in the church. Some of these you will not. But here's some here's some practical ways in which we can draw near to God. One, we can crack open our Bible. Maybe dust it off, crack it open. There is no better way to get to know God, to get to know the one you're in relationship with than to read his word. No better way. This is my favorite way to connect with God is to open scripture and to learn something about him that I have never learned before. When I'm with my wife, I love learning things that I've never knew before. Same thing with God. When I get to read his word, I'm like, I didn't know that. That's crazy. There's so much depth there. And so pick up your word. We gotta read it. There's prayer, right? You can spend time in prayer and in, in, in talking with him and even listening to him at the same time. Not just asking, God give me this or God heal me in that. Truly having a conversation. Down the road, we will totally talk about that. How do we hear God's voice? There's fasting is another way. Fasting is, a, is um, it seems complicated, but it might even seem outdated. And is it even relevant to today? I think it is. Down the road, we'll talk about it a little more. There's worship songs. Um, you can spend time in worship. I believe all worship, just so that you know, music itself was created to glorify God. And when we use it to do such, when there's worship songs that praise his name and lift his name up, we are listening to the way music was supposed to be played, to glorify him. And so we can listen to those in the car or wherever. Um, one of my other favorites, to get out into nature. Um, that's why I like fishing so much. 
is I'm just out there killing fish for the glory of God, you know? <laughs> so beautiful. And when you're out there, you admire the creation, but be careful when you're out there that we're not just admiring the creation, but we're admiring the creator who created the creation. It's a big difference there, you know? Like, oh man, look at those beautiful flowers. Oh man, look at our beautiful God who made that beautiful, those beautiful flowers. He's amazing. Um, I think another great one is to have God conversations with people around you, and especially if you can with those who have been seasoned Christians, seasoned disciples, those people who have walked a longer journey, and just ask them, what has your journey been like? When you talk to someone who has walked a road with Jesus and has been faithful, that only draws you not just closer to that person, but closer to God, and we want to draw near to him. Um, Another one, you could redeem your commute. I don't know about you, but when I get in traffic, I spend a lot of time getting angry. Um, my wife knows this. And so one of the best ways that I love to do when I drive to work is I listen to podcasts. There are a lot of great pastors out there who give sermons every single Sunday. I listen to like five or six of them and then I rip those off and then come and share them with you right here and right now. And so um, it's absolutely amazing. There's so many things out there. Podcasting is phenomenal. So when you're sitting in the car, listen to learning about Jesus, learning about him and drawing close to him. You could do... um, Memorizing of scripture, I love this. My wife posts scripture all throughout the house, all in different places, um, all over the place. You could serve somebody who's hurting. I can't imagine, I don't know a better way to grow in your faith than to serve those who are in need. And so these are simple ways in which to draw close to him. I mean, he's not here. It's not like we can't go and just sit right next to him and listen, but in ways you can sit right next to him and listen to what he has to say. And you can have conversations with him through prayer. And that's the way in which we draw close to him now on this earth until we literally are in his presence right next to him in heaven. And so if we feel that distance, then our way to get over that, our way to push through that is to draw near to him. And you will feel more known than you have ever. He knows you completely, but we gotta get it from here to here. And that happens from drawing close to him. So here's what I'd like to do real quick. Kim, are you ready to do it? Come on up, Kim. I've asked her to come up um, because I want her to share a song with you. Now, you're gonna think, oh man, he's been planning this for months. No, I literally asked her in the hallway three minutes ago, or like right three minutes before I stepped up here to come play this song. So, um, so she's ready. She's been practicing. So she's good to go. Here's what happened. I'm, you know this is a true story because of what I'm about to tell you. This song that you can go ahead and start playing at any time, um, uh, I heard it and I played it all week long in my office. Here's why. I confess to you that I watched the movie Titanic um, like a week ago, last week. And I realized that that was actually a really cool movie. I didn't remember it. I didn't, you know, and just if you're wondering, I watched it. I didn't watch that one part, you know, where, where the Titanic actually hits the boulder. I skipped that part. I skipped the iceberg part. It was the other part. I did. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> I realized there's such beautiful music in that, that, uh, that movie. And so I went to iTunes and I downloaded it. I downloaded three songs. I didn't really pay attention. I just got the soft ones and I played them continually as I wrote this. I'm kind of obsessive compulsive about things. And as I was writing this, I listened to these on repeat. And out of the three songs, this was my favorite. And this song apparently was played on the Titanic as, I don't know if you know this, as the Titanic was going down, the band stayed out as the Titanic was sinking and played to everyone right? They played to everyone as it's going down to keep them calm. 
And this, traditionally speaking, is the last song that was played before they sunk with the Titanic. I didn't realize it as I listened to it all week long, truly on repeat. I should have looked at how much. I could go in my office and see how many times it was played. But I'm telling you, it was played at least 50 times. The song is called, Near My God to Thee. Near my God to thee. And here I'm writing a song about, draw, or writing a sermon about drawing near to God. And here, catch this. I went and looked at the lyrics. Look at the lyrics of this song. Just part of them. Though like the wanderer, the sun gone down. Darkness be over me. My rest a stone. And I don't know if that's a reference to Garrett or not, but um, it very well could be. <laughs> but catch the chorus. This is amazing. Still, all my songs shall be nearer, nearer my God to thee. If you're feeling distant, right? If you're feeling distance inside of your world from God, he's saying, draw near to me. Nearer, nearer my God to thee. That is our longing. And so here's the bottom line. When it comes to the need to be known, God already knows us. It has been met. The felt need to be known has been met. God knows us completely, and yes, he still likes us. But we desire to feel that, right? We desire to feel that reality. And if you do, then it simply means that we need to recognize its truth, and we need to draw near to him. And in drawing near to him, here's the beauty of it, we get to know him, right? We get to know him. And I saved the best verse for last. Here's what it says. These are the words of Paul. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, here it is, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He knows us completely, right? We know that here. But our greatest joy, our greatest pleasure, our greatest opportunity that we have before us is to get to know him, to get to know him. And when we do that, we will feel what it's like to be known by him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.